Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. I'm really thrilled to announce that the sponsor for this week's episode of the podcast is Beckett's Gin. Beckett's is a fantastic company that prides itself on using the best quality local ingredients to produce some truly superb tasting gin. Their London Dry Gin is a great all-rounder, perfect for putting in your classic G&T. It is incredibly refreshing and aromatic, made with juniper berries hand-picked in Box Hill in Surrey. It is a deceptively simple gin with a recipe that has been honed to perfection, definitely a drinks cupboard staple. If you're looking for something a bit different, I can recommend the Beckett's Spirited Gin. It is bursting with citrusy notes of lime and orange peel, which pair perfectly with a bittersweet taste of English juniper and Kingston mint. It is ideal for G&Ts or if you're feeling adventurous for mixing into cocktails. Why not take a look at the Beckett's website and try some of their bespoke cocktail recipes? And with Christmas just around the corner, Beckett's Gin makes the perfect gift. Their miniature variety gift set is the best way to sample all their gins. The set includes miniatures of their London Dry Gin, Slow Gin and Spirited Gin, all packaged in a beautiful gift box. It is the ideal Christmas present. And here's the best part. Listeners to this podcast can get a 20% discount on all the products I've mentioned here and more. Just head over to beckettsgin.co.uk slash brendan to claim your discount. That's B-E-C-K-E-T-T-S-G-I-N dot co dot U-K slash Brendan to get 20% off. Beckettsgin.co.uk slash Brendan. And now on with the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this very special live recording of the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. And my brilliant guest, Graham Linehan. Graham, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello, Brendan. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you back on. The first time you were on my pod, it was a roaring success. So I'm delighted to have you on the live version. That's, that's, I think the audience is, is really going to like the stuff that we're talking about this evening. And of course, the thing I want to talk about is your new book, um, Tough Crowd, How I Made and Lost a Career in Comedy. The first thing I want to say about it is that it's just a brilliant read. It's it's a really excellent read. It's happy, sad, funny, interesting, uh, argumentative. It's got everything you could want from a kind of memoir. And um, I'm, I'm convinced that even some of the gender cranks who don't like you very much will be forced to admit that it's actually a good read. Uh, there's so much in this book. It is a memoir. It's a memoir with a difference. It takes us on a journey from your childhood in Ireland through to your discovery of culture, your discovery of comedy, your move into the world of comedy writing, your stunning success, of course, in comedy writing, particularly with Father Ted, but also with uh, uh, Black Books and the IT crowd. And then halfway through, bam, it takes a big turn as we move into the era in which you've been cancelled for daring to criticise gender ideology and daring to stand up for women's rights. So it's a fascinating memoir. It's a fascinating journey. I've got loads of questions I want to ask you about it. But the first one I want to ask you is what what was your feeling as you were writing this book? I was thinking to myself, what emotional state was Graham in while he was writing this? Was was it a therapeutic exercise? Was there an element of revenge in some of the stuff that you were writing about? What was your feeling? Why did you think it was necessary to get this book out there to put your side of the story across? Oh, gosh, that's such a big question. And that's like, 
yeah, that's why I had to write the book because no one, otherwise no one listens to you. It's the most extraordinary thing. If you don't write a book, then you simply don't get to have an opinion, <laughs> you know? And, and also, you know, my, my anger, yes, it's certainly true that, that the early draft featured a lot more revenge, but luckily my editor <laughs> knocked that out of me. Um, in fact, I had a joke that at one point I was, it was a semi joke, but I, I had a joke that at one point I wanted one of the chapters to be called, and now we move on to liars, which is <laughs> Father Ted's uh, very bad tempered speech when he wins the golden cleric. But I was talked out of that and I went back to it and I went over the material. And oh, yeah. And another interesting thing happened, which was I had this kind of um, uh, wacky uh, structure logos bouncing back and forwards through time. And it was I was just trying to be over clever, you know. And then when uh, I got rid of that, all the pieces fell into place and I realized, oh, this is actually quite a good story. So it was a nice, that was the nice moment of the whole thing was realizing that, you know, these fools had actually given me a good story, which is, which is the greatest revenge. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think people will be talking about this for years, how a whole kind of middle management, upper privileged, privileged class fell for such a huge con job, you know, and, uh, yeah, it's just it's it's you know even though it's obviously been very devastating to my life, it's it's kind of an honor to be uh, in this part of such a bizarre historical moment. And what better person to catalog it than a fucking comedy writer? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, one thing that really struck me, which made that your experience sound even more Kafkaesque than I thought it had been, is that you described quite early on in the book. Um, in the introduction, and then you come back to it later, that your cancellation, your your kind of slow exile from the dinner party circuit and the cultural sphere, it was kind of imperceptible. There was no big moment at which you thought to yourself, "I'm out. I've been I've been elbowed aside by by the cultural bigwigs." It was kind of a, a slow process. There was no um, uh, eureka moment at which you realised that it had happened. And that, that kind of sounded quite sinister as you were describing it. And uh, I want to ask you what that experience was like. So there you are, you're riding high in the comedy world. You've got BAFTAs. Um, you, you describe in the book how when people meet you and their eyes would light up, particularly because of Father Ted. Father Ted was Ooh. such a comedy institution. People absolutely loved it. And they, they would love meeting you and talking to you about it. So you're riding high in the comedy world and then slowly, imperceptibly, it starts to fall apart. What was it like in that moment? And and what was the slow dawning realization on your part that things were falling apart at the scenes or, or that your comedy career, as you say, was being smashed to smithereens? Oh, Jesus. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, it, it, as you say, it was invisible at first. I remember the first thing I was counseled about was... Because I'm such a, I'm such a, I'm such a lovely guy. I was going to devote like, like this part of my life to teaching comedy. I really wanted to do that. I thought, I, I thought, I, I, I love explaining why things work, why things funny, and why, why things are funny, and why they sometimes aren't, and all that sort of stuff. So I was when I was asked to do a tour of Australia to teach comedy, I was just delighted, and I kind of um, spent, um, you know, a few months crafting what I thought would be an, a good day value for money for whatever exorbitant price we were going to we were going to charge them and um and actually teach them something about how to write comedy you know um and uh yeah but jeff frontier productions in australia who you know pride themselves on being freedom of speech because they handle um uh jim jeffries the 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 uh that comedian and they were like, uh, they said they, they wouldn't bring me over because they couldn't afford the security costs, you know. And it was only later, like I heard that at the time and I was like, oh, yeah, of course, that makes sense. It was only later I realized, oh, that's what they say to everybody. That's what they say to everybody. So so what's going on is there's a kind of a corporate uh, trans activist, uh, um, you might call it an agreement going on, you know, Um and 
Yeah, it's it's just the, the 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 real villains of this moment are people like Frontier and Hattrick Productions. Um, these are people who had power. Sonia Friedman Productions, you know, who who were supposed to do the theater version of the the musical. These are people who have a great deal of power and a great deal of sway in the industry. And all they had to do, all they had to do was say, of course, women deserve fair sports. Mm -hmm. Of course, women deserve single sex spaces. Of course, children shouldn't be uh, mutilated and sterilized. You know, that's all they had to say. And none of them could say it, even as they watched my life being picked apart and destroyed in front of their eyes. You know? Yeah. I want to come back to the question of Father Ted the Musical. I'm so pissed off that Father Ted the Musical is not going to happen, mainly because I want to see it, but also because of all the hardship that it's inflicted on on you, the fact that it's not happening. That's two things that I've written incompletely, that 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 comedy uh, lesson day and the Ted Musical, and neither of them will be produced because, you know, people like Hattrick are indulging you know, the equivalent of, 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 you know, just cultural bullies, you know, religious police. Anyway, sorry. That touches on what I wanted to ask you next, which was um, the shedding of your friends and colleagues and former comrades and what that experience was like. So you talk in the book, you still have a few friends left from your time at the top of comedy, uh, Jonathan Ross is an example that you give. Richard Iodi is another example, who himself was threatened with cancellation for daring to make a positive comment about your book. I mean, that really shows how psychotic this movement has become. Um, mm. But lots of your other former writing partners and colleagues and friends abandoned you bit by bit and would make bitchy comments. You know, what's happened to Graham? Why is he banging on about this issue? You have yeah. this great line in the book where someone says to you, why are you so obsessed with a minority like the trans community? And you say, well, women are not a minority and women's rights are important. And I think that's a really good response to that question. Um, what was that like, losing friends with whom you had done so much work, had so much success? Uh, people in the comedy world, which is supposed to be a pretty freewheeling world where you're allowed to make funny jokes, outrageous jokes, say silly things or controversial things. What was it like losing uh, those friends? And what did that tell you about the comedy world itself? Well, I would differentiate between the comedy world and the entertainment world, uh, or you might what you might call the, the, the world of middle-class letters, journalists and uh, people in the theatre and all these all these industries that where gender ideology has really, really taken hold, you know, I would say does I differentiate differentiate between those two, for mostly because comedians they don't really, you know, a lot of funny, a lot of people are funny because they don't actually. It's hard to get on with people who are funny sometimes. You know, <laughs> they kind of they tend to be, you know, they tend to only kind of seek each, each other's company out, out rarely anyway. So I, I was always a loner and, and, you know, when things started falling apart, it was kind of, I'd done that thing that a lot of people do, a lot of husbands do, where they outsource the social life to the wife. And, uh, and that, was a, that was a huge mistake. That was one of, one of many huge mistakes I made, you know, because you just think, oh, well, you know, I wrote Father Ted, I wrote The IT Crowd, everyone loves me. Nothing, nothing bad is ever going to happen to me. Yeah. And you turn around and you stand up for women's rights. and they take them, they destroy your whole life. They destroy your whole life. And um, anyway, so, so uh, sorry, I might return to that for every so often. Um, so, but look, but in a way, I don't really expect comedians like Vic and Bob, Vic and Bob don't know what the hell's going on. They're lovely. I love their comedy. I would hate anything to happen to them. I'd hate them to be canceled. I did, they've never said a political thing in their life. They could probably sit this one out, you know. But someone like Armando Iannucci, you know, and 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 Chris Morris and Charlie Brooker, all of these guys, they have been, you know, commenting their heads off right up until this issue, mm -hmm. and they don't say a word about it. And then you get also you get professional feminists, Kathleen Morgan, Kathleen Moran, who wrote a book called The Trouble with Men, and didn't mention the trans issue. 
Yeah. As if the trouble with men is not that they're stealing women's uh, places in sports and trying to get into private spaces, into their private spaces. That's the trouble with men. So mm-hmm. people and people are just pretending it's it's not an issue or it doesn't exist or something. It, it does. It is to use the Douglas Murray word. It is deranging how so many people are pretending we don't know that they can see what's going on and are deliberately ignoring it. You know, yeah. it's deranging. <laughs> yeah. I think you're right that, you know, uh, one shouldn't expect comedy to be particularly clear politically or outspoken on certain controversial issues. I mean, it's not really a comedian's responsibility to yeah. make statements about the world, but, but you, you do it's expect... It's a comedian's responsibility to always tell the truth. Yeah. And if you're, if you're, if you're in a, in what you might call the kind of commentariat uh, as a comedian then it's still your, you still have to tell the truth, you know? But the other thing is you can't be too angry at people because there is such a kind of a blackout on this issue that certain people simply don't know. Like, you you can hear it when you hear people like Alistair Campbell and Rory, uh, what's his name, uh, uh, talking about it. They, they just think it's just some silly thing. It's like a moth batting against a window to them you know they don't even register it as an issue um and you know that's because they only read the guardian <laughs> yeah. they only read the guardian they only read the liberal papers whatever bubble they're in it's not impacting them and it's being presented by the same journalists who are hoodwinking uh, them as a culture wars issue you know and and it's not. There's going to be a whole generation of ruined gay kids out of this. It's 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 a huge crisis. I think it's the biggest crisis for gay youth since AIDS. You know, we're to, we're literally talking about sterilizing a whole generation of gay kids and of and of potentially shortening their lives and certainly giving them health problems for the rest of their lives. Yeah, you know, and yeah. and and no one's talking about it. It's yeah. extraordinary to me. It is extraordinary, and uh, it's great that you you are talking about it, including in this book. And I think one of the interesting points you make about comedy, because I think one thing that people will really appreciate about the book is that it's got all the details of your brutal cancellation and the reasons you were cancelled, which is that you spoke up for women-only spaces and women rights and the right of gay kids not to be transed into the supposed opposite sex. Um but it's also got a lot of stuff on uh, comedy and your early experiences. And there's a really striking line in the book where you say the first half of the book is, is like a gift, I think, to people who want to get into comedy. It has lots of wise advice for them and tips about how they might make it. And you have this really interesting line where you say, if everyone was doing a certain kind of comedy, you should be doing the opposite. And, And that really struck me because I think one of the things that, I think people expect comedy to do is to grate against orthodoxy or to break out of the kind of straitjacket of normal thinking, whatever that might be, and and to to be a bit daring and to be a bit on the edge and to be a bit controversial. You know, one thinks of someone like Joan Rivers, for example, the late great Joan Rivers, who would say the the most outrageous things, but it would make people laugh, and she would bristle against um, consensus. And there are many other comedians who did likewise. So you also make the point that one of the problems with comedy shows today, especially those panel shows on TV, is that they sound like they were written for the HR department. You know, the, this you imagine that the, the, the audience they have in mind is a bunch of people who work for HR, so they have to have the correct opinions on every single issue. So mm. it is one of the problems today, and one of the reasons this this whole affair has impacted on your career so much, is one of the problems that comedy and culture have become incredibly conformist and are not doing the thing they're supposed to do. Uh, yeah, but I wouldn't blame it on comedy. I would say I would, I would widen it out to culture. I don't think it's like, it's like just comedians who are falling for this stuff. This is like a, 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 a very powerful mass delusion that tells an extremely, um, uh, an extremely uh, striking uh, story that's almost religious you know that you can transform. You can become happy. You can, you can be magically turned into a, a spirit. Your spirit can move into another body. It's all. It's just pure religion, um, and uh, these stories are powerful for a reason. You know, and they've been told for, you know, um, 
uh, thousands of years. And the last time that there was such a huge advance in 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 what you might call publishing, uh, when the printing press came out, mass delusions took over all over the world. You know, there were there were there were many different forms of religious manias going on after that. You know, and now we have the internet. You know, we have the internet that's been kind of, I think, poisoned by uh, American academic thought. Uh, combined with European weirdo pedo pedo researchers, <laughs> like <laughs> you know, like basically, if you look, look up Genevieve Gluck's writings on this subject, she's just seen stuff that would turn your hair white about the influence of some really dangerous men uh, in Europe. Uh, but anyway, all this stuff has trickled down from academia, and it's just. I don't know. It's an interesting one. It seems to have done. There's a brilliant story about New York con or con men. They used to love New York because New Yorkers thought they were smart. That's why they loved New York, and that's what this has done. This is this seems to have infected a large group of people who think they're smart, and they, these are people, as I say, in the theater, media, publishing, uh, television. Um, they're you know, what you might call the kind of, I don't know, what is it, metrosexual class or something, you know? And they are completely unrepresentative. Um, they are uh, incredibly privileged. They, for for instance, will never need need uh, privacy in a woman's shelter, you know? And um, and yeah, these are the people who are who are controlling, not people's thoughts, because I think the vast majority of people think this is all nonsense you know but what they are controlling is the flow of information you know so you get things like um the, the most extraordinary uh example i can think of was the we spa story in mm. uh in the states where the guardian claimed it was a hoax three times yeah and the, th and the third time they did it they did it after it was revealed that the guy in the uh, spa was a sex offender, you know, and not a trans woman, as was being used to smear the witness who came forward. You know, the, the Guardian even went on to continue to call that woman a transphobe after it came out that it was a sex offender in the, in the wee spa. So that's a hard thing to fight against when a newspaper is pulling out every stop to lie. Mm -hmm to its readers, you know, and this is going on all across the board. The BBC, you know, look at Women's Hour. As soon as they got rid of Jenny Murray, the whole, it was like a whole tranche of feminism just disappeared as far as BBC viewers were concerned. They had to be shamed into getting Maya Forst out of her, you know. So it's been um, extraordinary to watch the very tight control of inf information in this. And, and I have to say, uh, you know, if it wasn't for what's considered more conservative outlets like Spiked, you know, which I used to, I, I, the idea that I would ever appear on a Spiked podcast in my old lefty days. Um, but but you have platformed women, so have GB News, and the BBC has acted as if this whole subject just, just doesn't exist. And it's it's just one of the, it's disgraceful. I'm absolutely disgusted with my old colleagues and um, my old comrades, you know, like my political colleagues, you know. I mean, we at Spike don't really consider ourselves conservative. We, no, we, no. Consider, we consider ourselves quite radical, actually. But, you know, that's a, that's a discussion for another day. Who knows yeah, what these terms... I, I know, I'm sorry, it's shorthand. But also, yeah. I'll tell you what it is, Brendan. It's also the way you're portrayed. And, and you know, it was the, it, it was a portrayal of you that I engaged in as well. Yeah. And that's what, what I'm trying to warn people about now, is that we're all acting upon received opinions, and we don't even know why we're we're annoyed at people half the time, you know? And I, and I just think that we need to, if we pull the brakes on that now, there's a chance we could pull out of a really steep dive that we're in, you know? Because the the, the the reaction to, well, I don't want to go into it, obviously, but but the reaction to recent events in the Middle East has, has been appalling. Yeah. Appalling. Yeah. You know, I, I, I really agree with that. And a, a, a very good or incredibly worrying example of the kind of problem with internet culture that you're talking about and the problem with kind of woke ideology more broadly. Um, but it's funny you mentioned um, your life on Twitter before this all blew up, before you really 
jumped into the gender issue and 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 decided that you had to put your neck on the line for for women's rights and for the right of uh, gay youths not to be um, subjected to medical correction. Essentially, that's what we're talking mm-hmm. about. Um, so before this, you you were on social media. You were followed by lots and lots of people. You were putting your views across quite forcefully, not only about Spike, but about lots of other issues as well. Um, and, and then in the book, you described that you started off by tweeting about the trans question and starting to raise questions about it, and particularly about the impact that it was having on women's rights and the, the entire idea of womanhood, which bit by bit was being chipped away at by the new language, the new terminology, the idea that a man should be able to go wherever he wants if he claims to be a woman. So you started tweeting about some of this. You described that you were getting strange responses from friends and colleagues, and eventually they turned their back on you. I did want to ask you, what were the big issues that made you think, I do need to speak about this? I do need to tweet about this? Were there certain events? Were there turning points where you thought this, I can't let this slide, even if it puts my career at risk, I need to say something about this. I remember the first thing that really shocked me was the, just the way women were being spoken to the death threats and the rape threats. I thought, I thought that alone is something that you have to stand up to. Like I remember, you know, we won't go into it because it's a whole, it's a whole uh, can of worms, but during the Gamergate years, uh, which was a kind of online campaign that's kind of too confusing to talk about, really. But uh, essentially, the way it was portrayed was right-wing misogynistic men trying to drive women off the internet. And that turned out not to be entirely true. It was, you could just say it was men trying to drive women off the internet. And among them were some conservatives, among them were some of the people that I'm now at war with uh, to this day, you know. These are basically people who do not like women, they're misogynists, and they leap on every opportunity they can find to hurt, demean, and uh, be sadistic towards women, you know. And Game Gamergate had some good people in there, but, but it also had a few of these people. But this movement is, you know, the the, the good people are just kind of you know, the, the 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 most vocal people, the biggest representatives they have are uh, insane. Now, they're not sending their best because there are no best. Trans activists are uh, uh, a group of extremely committed, um, uh, sadistic and dangerous people who are controlling a much larger group of generous People who just want to know what the right, you know, as they say in the book, who just want to know what the right thing to do is so they can go and do it, you know. But at the moment, you have these activists who are weaponizing people's uh, people's desire to be kind, uh, compassionate, um, uh, and always to give the benefit of the doubt to what seems like a vulnerable minority. But you know, the vulnerable minority does not exist. The vulnerable minority is actually a huge collection of so many disparate disparate experiences that the word trans is useless to cover them, you know, and misleading. And it leads to bad outcomes for some people and good outcomes for, for others. But the problem is there's too many bad outcomes at the moment, you know, and, and I'm seeing it now women in their early 30s now talking about how they nearly transitioned and now they have a child and whatever. And they're so grateful that they didn't make that mistake. But that generation is coming now and, and we're going to be hearing, you know, some terrible stories, you know. Um, so, yeah. So so anyway, it was the kids then that got me. I went to a, um, a Let Women Speak event. And I met a man who said that he was just back from being on a bender because he fell. He was he was recovering alcoholic, uh, but he he just come back from a two week bender because he just could not convince his daughter to not take testosterone, and his daughter was basically disappearing before his eyes. You know, her her jaw was growing. She was growing hair on her face. Her voice was deepening. None of these things she'll ever get back. And he knew he knew this because unlike a lot of people who are in this debate, he researched it. He looked at the effects of testosterone and he knows knew about as much as he needed to know 
to try and stop her. And he couldn't stop her. She was dead set on it because you have the BBC telling kids there's a thousand genders. You know, you got mermaids still operating. You got Stonewall joining in with all this stuff. And it's, um, yeah, it was it was meeting him, I think. I just thought, how how can you... How could how could I uh, I could how could I forget him? How could yeah. I forget him? You know, or his daughter? Yeah, uh, I mean there are there are so many tragic stories. I was reading recently about parents in America who who pack their lovely young daughters off to university, and then they come back after three months, six months. They've got moustaches, their voices are deepened, they've changed their name, and I think people some people don't understand just what a an extraordinary loss that is to parents who feel that their kids, their, their daughters in particular, in this case, are being sucked into a cult that could have lifelong physical and emotional consequences for them. Um, I want to ask you, we could get into trouble for this because we're two men and we, we don't necessarily want to mansplain things. Um, but I want to ask you what you think has happened to feminism. You, you mentioned the We Spa controversy there. Some listeners will be familiar with this. This was when uh, at a spa in Los Angeles, um, a man who claims to be a woman was walking around um, naked and reportedly in a state of arousal in the women's changing area where there were women and also girls. Um, it blew up into a huge controversy. And as you said, The Guardian uh, essentially said it was a hoax. They really damned the woman who rose, who, who raised the, the the alarm about this bloke. Um and it was a really shocking case. And at Spike, we we said that we now have the bizarre situation where so-called feminists are defending flashers' rights. They're defending the right of men to flash women. Whoever thought that we would arrive at that situation? But it's very curious to me that we have gone from the era of everyday feminism, as it was referred to a few years ago, which I think did actually pick up on some very trivial things. For example, if the waiter gave the bill to your boyfriend rather than to you, that was seen as an instance of everyday sexism. Or if the barman assumed right. that a woman would want half a pint rather than a full pint, that was terrible misogyny. I think it was a bit trivial at times. But some of those same feminists are now defending the right of men to walk around naked in front of women, to go into domestic violence shelters, to go into women's prisons, to be in areas where they're not wanted and then and, and where they could pose a threat. How has that happened? Is this a, a, another instance of the kind of the cult impact that you, that you write about, where people have just been lost to an ideology that makes no sense? Yeah, and you're right. This is a very dangerous dangerous area um, for men to be trespassing <laughs> in. But I don't know. I think that basically, from my little understanding of the matter, it seems to me that the the real problem was is intersectional feminism, uh, which is also called liberal feminism and is distinct from uh, uh, what is called radical feminism yeah. uh, in that radical feminists center women in everything and intersectional feminists center everybody in everything. <laughs> yeah. And the thing about it is that it's a lovely idea and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very, uh, uh, theoretically kind and compassionate. But what it does is it destroys feminism because it allows some men into feminism in the guise of women. And, uh, you know, that's, you just, it, that's just like introducing a foreign element to something that is, is, is dangerous to the, to the host, you know, like feminism is not for men, whatever you can be any kind of woman you want, any kind of woman you want, any color, any shape or size, feminism is for you. The only th people that feminism is not for is for men. And we can kind of see that, you know, what's happened when with this poison um, uh, is injected into, and it's not just not just men in pretending to be women, but straight men pretending to be gay women. It's, yeah. it's, it's shockingly uh, offensive. Uh, and yet, again, this weird hypnosis that everyone is under, where they cannot see the homophobia of that. So from what I'm told, you know, there were two branches and one went one way and one went the other way. But, you know, um, I like the one I'm on. <laughs> uh, and I love as well, there's some, there's some very kind of rigorous rules to radical feminism that I really love because it means, to me, it means that it's a political movement that's for my daughter. 
but not for me. That sounds great. I love that idea, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, one of those is that you, men men don't call themselves feminists. They call themselves feminist allies, okay? And I think that's lovely. I think that's lovely because, again, it's, it protects this space. It keeps protect. It, it, and I remember I did tell my daughter that once and, and her face lit up because she just she just – she thought it was great, something for women and women alone. So, you know, intersectional feminism, which which probably started out with the best of intentions. But again, uh, as I say, there's some very uh, deceptive and dangerous people, you know, who are also taking advantage of these uh, views. And they just kind of let themselves get hijacked, you know, yeah. to, the, to the extent that they nearly put Adam Graham in a women's prison, you know. I mean, I mean, really, you've got to think it's like our it's like our nervous system has been hijacked by some sort of alien creature. It's like, are you seriously did we seriously nearly put a double rapist in a women's prison? And the answer is, yeah, we did. We did. You know, (laughs) I mean, it it is extraordinary. And. uh one of the things I really appreciate about the book and, and other things that you've written. And when I hear you speak like, like just there, it often sounds like you feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall. And I think everyone has had that feeling on a number of issues these days, but particularly this issue where you can find yourself saying, listen, this person with a beard and a penis is not a lesbian. And people look at you as if you're some kind of crazy bigot or if you say, you know, this guy who raped women should not be in the women's prison estate with vulnerable women, and people think that you're being discriminatory or, or bigoted, uh, it, it is infuriating. And in relation to that, I wanted to ask you, you, you described there very well um, the insanity of some feminists, the, the liberal feminists, supporting the right of men to intrude on women's spaces. But I want to ask you now about the insanity of what's happened to the politics of gay rights. Mm. Um, you know, we, we've gone from an era in which um, there was a movement for gay equality, the right of gay men and lesbians to live freely in society without discrimination, without persecution, which was a pe- very positive movement of, of the late 20th century, into this new era of LGBTQIA, whatever, you know, the alphabet soup, Mm. Um, the politics of queer, which is a word that lots of people don't like, um, Mm. which is something very different, isn't it? I mean, it's so different that, as you've already alluded to, it actually ends up medically experimenting on young gay people. I mean, that's how different it is to the gay rights movement. What do you think has gone wrong with the politics of, of the gay rights movement? You know, publications like Pink News, for example, which seem to me to be hostile to the interests of gay people rather than uh, defending them? Oh, well, it's a very simple answer. They let straight people in. <laughs> it's that simple. They they basically said, this group of people here are queer. Uh, therefore, we're bringing them under the big umbrella we have. And in comes this guy who is giving himself a female name, has not had any surgery, and is now calling himself a lesbian and is protesting outside actual lesbian events. I don't know if you saw, um, but Jenny Watson, a young lesbian, um, who's going through a really rough time at the moment. She's also, she's being targeted by Pink News and the Hippies uh, coming up. Um, and uh, she's just trying to hold a lesbian speed dating night, you know, and she can't do it. She can't find venues. And when she does find a venue, they're disrupted by protest protesters, you know? So um, that's what happens when you let straight people uh, start to, uh, we could, there's a very funny term I see my gay friends using, uh, the spicy straights, they're called, you know, (laughs) (laughs) they're straight with extra steps. And that's why, you know, what the fuck does queer mean anyway? Why is it a separate word if it means, if it means something? Because, because then you like, the the Green Party are trying to get, are trying to introduce the, the term queer phobia. You know, like, who are you talking about? Yeah. You know, who, which group is represented by the word queer? And it seems to be anyone who wants to be, anyone who wants to be, including Adam Graham, you know, yeah. little rapist. You know, who, who ever thought it would be controversial to say that men should not go to a lesbian uh, speed dating night? I mean, that, that, that is really 
the insanity of the moment. And and there's also it was only when the fight back started happening. Sorry to, to cut across, yeah. but it was only when the fight back started happening that people noticed it was happening at all. There's no gay, there's no lesbian uh, bars in California. In California, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and it just all just went away quietly because no one dared complain. And now we're seeing these news stories come up because people are actually complaining. Anyway, sorry, what were you going to uh, I, I was going to ask you that, uh, that there's a very sinister element to all of this, which is the the resuscitation of homophobia. And, you know, if you think back to the 80s or maybe even earlier than the 80s, you know, one thing that was always said about lesbians, for example, is that they just needed a good seeing to. That mm. would sort them out. That would fix them. There was this kind of um, incredibly uh, insulting homophobic attitude towards lesbians, which said, you know, they just need... Essentially, it was saying they just need a good dick. I mean, that that is what some people, bigots, were saying. People are saying that now, again, but under the banner of trans rights, and it's seen as a progressive thing to say. So, for example, the BBC did a good report a couple of years ago about young lesbians who feel under growing pressure to yes. sleep with supposed trans women, i.e. men, people with penises. And if they don't, they're referred to as bigots. One of them said that she she's constantly being told by her friends, you just have to learn to accept a penis and what it feels like. I mean, this is the return of uh, poisonous bigotry in politically correct language, isn't it? Yeah, and sometimes not even that politically correct. Uh, the Rachel McKinnon, Veronica Ivy, was once asked about this, and he said that lesbians would learn to cope with with someone who had a dick, you know, I mean, the, the it's 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 yeah, it's just it's homophobia. But it's the home the homophobia begins from the very moment that you allow a man to take the word lesbian or a woman to take the word, you know, to 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 to, to be a gay a gay man. Like the, the the one of the worst, most awful tricks, and I don't think people even realize it's going on is that a lot of these young women who transition, they literally think they're going to turn into gay men. They literally think they're going to turn turn into young gay men. Uh, there's many reasons for this. One of them is that they, you know, they, they, they kind of um, see it as a, a relationship that's free of the power games that you get in straight couples. And it seems like almost like a, an idyllic relationship to have. But they're being told it's literally true. It's been, you know, and um, that is is leading to, you know, young transitioned women who may have facial hair, but who very much have women's bodies in gay uh, uh, meet, uh, meetups of various sorts. Um, and it's just, she's just actually moved herself outside of any dating pool. The gay men are not interested in her. You know, and the and the most shocking thing about this is that I've been hearing multiple reports uh, from gay men on Grinder that there are now straight men joining Grinder to predate on these transitioned women. Mm-hmm. And one guy wrote a, a, a actually I have it if you don't mind me because it's it's so unbelievably shocking to hear him talk about it. He said, "Won't lie, I've been using Grinder for years for easy pussy." As long as you're picky about it, it's pretty easy. Yeah, some of them are horribly hairy crimes against gods, but some of them are just like, just started tea one week ago and are indistinguishable from regular women, but will happily jump into bed with a quote-unquote gay man to prove how masked they are, you know? Wow. I mean, this is what, this is, this is what queer theory is, mm. you know? No, gay spaces aren't gay spaces. Women's spaces aren't women's spaces. And people are really suffering as a result, you know? Yeah. That poor, that woman he's talking about is being used by these yeah. men, you know? Yeah. I mean, that, that, that really is what queer theory is. I mean, queer theory is, is the destruction of gay rights. I mean, that's essentially yeah. what we're talking about here, which is, which is a, a, a very Orwellian situation that that language would be used to undermine the rights that people fought for over the past 50 years. Um, okay, I, I, I want to remind the audience that I'm going to take give your questions to Graham in about five minutes or so, so get them in in the chat down below. Um, but before we do that, Graham, I want to ask you uh, about the second part of your book, which is there are obviously flashes of humour in the second part of your book where you really recount your cancellation and and the experiences that you've had. 
Um, but it's very sad as well. I have to say, it's, it, there are emotional moments. There is a you describe in detail how much you've lost as a consequence of speaking out on this issue, um, personally, in terms of your career. Um, Father Ted, the musical, uh, uh, you know, which uh, is a particular issue for you, I think, because you devoted so much energy to it, and it feels like a real betrayal on your part that that thing has been shelved because of your uh, uh, your views on this issue. Um, so let's talk a little bit about cancellation and what it's like. And the first thing I wanted to ask you on that is that one thing that people say about people like you is that you haven't really been cancelled. And so The Independent, in its review of your book, it, it has this unbelievably ridiculous line in the review where it says the existence of this book is proof that he's not being cancelled. And you think it's quite amusing because what they're essentially saying is he's still speaking, he's still breathing. You know, we haven't been fully successful in destroying his presence in public life. There's There's a sense of regret when they say this because they can't believe they haven't extinguished you entirely. But there is this myth, isn't there, that if you're doing this podcast and you're writing a book and you're speaking and you're tweeting, that you haven't been cancelled. And that's just not the case, is it? I can't I can't get, get on the comedy stage in, at the Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, what else, what, what else do you have to say? This is about the Edinburgh Fringe is supposed to be the home of free speech, yeah. edgy theatre you know, hard hitting comedy, whatever else you want to say. And I can't get, I can't get on stage, you know, it, 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 these, you're, it, you're absolutely right. That's what these people are, are saying. They're basically saying that I didn't kill myself, you know, yeah. and yeah. that is the aim. They want people to kill themselves. Gillian Phillip, uh, who is a, an author who is now a truck driver because they destroyed her publishing career because the people in publishing are similarly uh, awful. <laughs> um, you know, uh, she said there were times when she considered killing herself. It, you know, I, I it, it, there was too much of it made in a recent thing I did with the Telegraph because I, I only, it only crossed my mind once, and I spoke to my lovely friend Stella O'Malley, who's a therapist, and she said, "Don't, don't do that again. Don't even." Because I was saying, ah, I was just picking out places to jump from, you know, and she said, "Don't do that because that's how it starts," you know. Mm-hmm. So I stopped. I went boom, not doing that anymore because I won't let these fuckers win, you know. And and you know, yeah, they're going to keep they're going to keep every single thing I will do to try and make a bit of money or to try and clear my name or uh, whatever it happens to be will be stymied at every point by these people. They will never stop fighting, you know, yeah. uh, because um, yeah, because it's it's a zero sum game for them. So uh, I've just got to keep finding these little opportunities where I get them to, um, you know, I don't know, just tell the truth, I guess. Yeah. I was just thinking that if, if, if you're going to have a therapist, it should be someone like Stella O'Malley. She's great on so yeah. many issues. She, she was on this podcast recently talking a lot of sense about a, a lot of issues. Um, I think you're right. There is this um, instinct among certain sections of society, and it's not just the extreme trans activists they are aided and abetted i think by as you know by the cultural establishment or the liberal elite or or whatever we're supposed to call it um uh, but there is this instinct amongst those sections of society to completely crush someone to erase them entirely and and you can really sense their frustration when graham linehan is on the tv again or is trying to do comedy in Edinburgh. And, and there is this sense of frustration on their part that they haven't succeeded. And I, I wanted to ask you about the ruthlessness of that, because it, it it seems to me pretty obvious. This is another kind of banging one's head against a brick wall moment. It seems obvious to me that preventing people from speaking, demonizing them day in, day out, and uh, as you and I know, this happens to, to women even more than to men. I mean, women who speak out on this issue are, you know, threatened with rape and death. That they're, they're told to suck my girl dick. That they're, they're uh, physically attacked in many instances, as we saw with Kelly J. Keane uh, in in New Zealand. Um, there's a ruthlessness here, isn't it? Isn't there? Which should surely concern everyone, even those who are not particularly interested in this issue that that you've written about and that you've spoken about. It should concern people that there is this uh, pretty cruel streak in contemporary society that would rather erase people than than listen to their concerns, listen to their ideas. 
you know, I, I, I believe that the numbers of ordinary members of the general public in the Stasi was something like one in six or one in five, even some insane number like this. So if you, you know, if they weren't actually living in your house, it was probably the next two or three people you met, you know, and it just goes to show that there is unfortunately in everybody, a um, human desire to um, control and to um, punish uh and the Stasi had that, and now we have it in the form of the kind of um, huge surveillance system we've we've all set up in our own homes and our own lives, um, and which we kind of contribute to and suffer from and benefit from. But the problem, I always think, is just that there's never been a conversation about it. We've never actually said, well, what, what has the internet done to us? You know, like, where's the porn conversation? That really had to, should have happened years ago. I think the porn conversation is now just playing out in the in the bodies of these kids who are distressed by what they've seen online and want to remove themselves from from that as much as they can. So there's all these conversations that just never happened. And we're just kind of now dealing with as we both as we both said several times in this interview, insanity, just pure insanity. And you're like, why, why, why is this happening? Why is it even why is there even a discussion about whether there's only two sexes? You know, why is that even going on? And you know, we it's because we're just we're the boiling frogs, you know, we've been bubbling away for years. And uh, another aspect of this that I feel kind of <laughs> kind of embarrassed about is that the reason it's been able to bubble away for years is because the main targets were women, you know, gay people after that, but women and gay people, two minorities, you know, and because they uh, are minorities, their complaints weren't taken as seriously as they should have been. And so we bubbled and bubbled and bubbled and now we're here. That's very well put. Um, Okay, Graham, I'm going to do some quick fire questions for you now from the audience. Um, This is a really good question to kick off with. This is from James. And he says, do you think that the apology you received from John Boyne shows that the tide is finally turning? So so John Boyne, people will know, very well-known Irish writer, attacked you a few times in the past on this issue. But quite recently, he he wrote a very impassioned apology to you and basically says, Graham, you were right. Um, What do you think that apology tells us about where we're at right now? Well, oh, gosh. I don't know. I can't really speak for John. I just know that John is a is a very, very decent guy. And I think anything where he felt he might have got something wrong might have troubled him. That's that's the that's that's prob- probably as simple as it gets, you know. He also I think he also he met he, he met up with a great bunch in, in Dublin uh of young gay guys who are now and girls, excuse me, uh who are uh, beginning to speak up against this stuff. And I think that I think they influenced him as well. Uh, but whatever whatever reason for it, it was it, it was just wonderful because it kind of um, I mean, the fact he said. He said unreservedly, you were right and I was wrong. I was, yeah. That's what really blew me away. That's such a such a decent thing for him to write, you know. And I think it was, uh, he mentioned to me as well that it was a treatment of Roisin Murphy that yeah. really made him realize what was going on, you know? Yeah. Because Roisin Murphy did less than nothing, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Six Music dropped her from the playlists, you know? Um, so I think that shocked him. Um, and and hopefully, I, I don't know, yeah, I think it's little things like that that will help, you know? There's, 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 there's always other things, setbacks. But... There's a lot of people who are kind of um, invested in various different ways in maintaining my kind of toxic um, uh, uh, reputation, and there's other people who realise that you know it, it's 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 not a good thing to do to someone to try and keep them in this state of um, you know isolation and um, and financial uh, uncertainty. Um, so yeah, I, I always I, I think I think weirdly I have I do have a sunny view of things. I think people are genuinely good, decent people. So I've always felt I just have to wait, you know. I, I think the um yeah, the Roisin Murphy cancellation or the attacks on her, I think that will have opened quite a few people's eyes because as you say, all she did was make a comment on her private Facebook page 
about puberty blockers being effed, and they are effed. She's absolutely yeah. right about that. And there was this ruthless attack on her, and she was prevented from performing at certain venues, and she was not promoted in the way that she should have been. I was very pleased when The Telegraph credited you and me with helping to um, bump her album up the charts because we kept telling people to buy it. Um, so, uh, yeah, that 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 was a, a shocking example of, of lots of the things that, that we've been talking about. Um, okay, Gareth says, this is a really interesting question. If you went through all this again, would you do anything differently? That's that's interesting because that you you know Graham that you have your critics even on your side of the aisle, um, people who think you're uh, you you push things uh, in a very outspoken way. You're quite colourful in how you describe people. You're not shy about criticising certain activists. Um, are you happy with all of that? Or, or if you were to go through this whole thing again, would you have changed anything? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have made friends with uh, a bunch of journalists led by Helen Lewis and uh, uh, Janet Turner. Um, that was a mistake. Uh, but uh, in general, yeah, and I wouldn't do Newsnight. Those are the two mm. things I wouldn't do. But basically, like, you know, yeah, the only the only things I wish I hadn't done uh, were things that gave people an opportunity to misrepresent me and you know, as Janet Turner did in her interview, like she, she, she counted the amount of times I say the word Nazi in the book yeah. without revealing that the section of the book is about how Sarah Smith in the Newsnight interview kept throwing the word at me. So she's deliberately adding to an atmosphere around me of madness or saying extreme things. And the whole Nazi thing came from a pink news headline that misrepresented an interview I did. So basically, you just got a lot of interested people who are who like to just maintain a kind of fog of confusion and madness around me. And anytime I get a chance to dispel it, they're right in there, you know, yeah. to to pump a bit more fumes into it. So, um, uh, so yeah, I'd be more careful with my friends. Um, but you know, I wouldn't change anything really because in the end. You know, when when you've been through something like what I've been through, uh, when it all shakes out, you're left with the greatest people in the world. You know, uh, you know, people like Dennis Kavanagh and Sarah Fillimore and Harry Miller and Posey Parker. These are people I I would have in a foxhole. You know, the the, the most the bravest people I've known and 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 people who've, who've made history and have 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 created a resistance that I think will be written about in years to come. You know. Yeah. I, I think there's such a fascinating divide in turf circles between, you mentioned that Posey Parker, people like Posey Parker, uh, Kelly J. Keene, who are quite populist, very conf- uh, upfront. Um, they are not shy of confrontation, although of course she's not responsible for anything that happened to her, particularly in New Zealand. You have those kind of uh, women's activists on one side. And then on the other side, you do have the slightly more academic, stiff uh, uh, people intervening in this discussion who seem to be protecting their own patch of intellectual life rather than standing up for women's rights. So there's a really interesting divide there. Um, Maybe we can talk about that at another time. Um, Okay. Maria asks, um, this is another great question. Has your appalling treatment by the Be Kind Brigade made you rethink any other contentious issues? Uh, really good question. Um, yeah, it kind of has. It's made me look at, at various things with a lot more skepticism. Um, but I don't want to go into what they are because uh, I'd rather turn that conversation into um, trying to find a solution for the problem that we simply don't know what to trust anymore. Uh, we don't know whether photographs or AI, we don't know whether infographics are just some bloke <laughs> writing stuff randomly and arranging it beautifully because that's what his software does. You know, we don't we don't know anything anymore. We don't we can't trust anyone. We're being lied to. Like like we have we have Keir Starmer saying that one in a thousand women women have a penis. We're, we're, we have the most extraordinary things being said to our faces that we know are not true. And so I worry about it. I just think that if the time comes when we do need 
some sort of mass response. Let's go for a non-political one, zombies. Uh, <laughs> but if we do need some sort of mass response, it will be hard to um, it will be hard to get people to pull together mm-hmm. because we we've been fooled so many times. We've been made to look such fools. You know, you, as I say, these young women, they've 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 now they've cut off their breasts because of this madness. And people are just going to stop trusting anything. So I feel like, again, it's another conversation that wasn't had that we should have had about the Internet, which is how do we maintain some some sense of community is 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 not quite the word but there was a communal thing I, i'm you know i'm a bit older than you brendan i think but like um you know when there was only four channels and stuff like that yeah. people talked about the same things you know people yeah. had something to talk about and people engaged with each other and i worry a little bit that the atomization that's been brought about by multiple channels multiple forms of content multiple ways of getting the content uh, I just feel that it's leading to uh, a terrible lack of social cohesion, um, one that might suddenly become really important to us, uh, you know, if some disaster happens. So, so yeah, that's what I worry about. But I won't say which subjects because I, I'm still trying to sort it, sort it all out, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I remember when there were only three channels, in fact. So <laughs> yeah, know, before, too, before yeah. the days of Channel 4. Um, Okay, a uh, couple more questions for you, Graham, before we let you go. Uh, you mentioned there Keir Starmer and um, his argument that most women don't have penises, which instantly implies that some women do. So it's the same old insanity, even though he's trying to sound reasonable. Um, and we have a, a question from Kathy who says, what do you think will happen with this issue if Labour wins the next election? Now, you are not a natural Tory. You're not a right-wing person. Um, but I think we can agree that Labour's stance on some of these issues has been catastrophically bad. What's your instinct about, if we have a Labour government, where will this go? I'm not sure. I mean, I mean, it's interesting. They have achieved so much, even without a Labour government, that I'm not sure there would be much of a difference um, what might happen is they might get the the people who are currently in the civil service and the NHS uh, and all these other institutions um, injecting this nonsense into the into the uh, system. Um, they might become a bit too bold, you know. Like uh, basically, one 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 thing that this that it happens time and time again in this debate is that trans activists try and do something outrageous and they're caught. And then they pretend they never wanted to do it, you know. Yeah. And I think you might find more occasions like that. And some of the, and if that if if it starts drawing them out more, then that's a good thing because basically, the more you know about this movement and the more you know about what's really going on, the less attractive it is to everybody. So again, I'm too much of an optimist. I, for me, it's win-win. On this issue, I'm single single issue uh, uh, voter, so I won't vote for Keir Starmer. Not for, not when he said that. You know, yeah. Not not the only thing Keir Starmer could do to convince me to vote for him would be a a, a John Boyne style apology to Rosie Duffield, which which Rosie Duffield deserves much more than I did my one from John. You know, she she did she's the most loveliest woman I've ever met. You know, and, and and the idea that the stuff she's been through at the hands of junior Labour members, mm. it's just disgusting, you know. So I won't have anything to do with them until he apologises to Rosie on behalf of the Labour Party. I think that that that's a good position. I mean, Rosie must surely be the, the bravest MP in Parliament, the way she has spoken up on this issue, despite the incredible flack she gets from mm. her own colleagues and from those lunatics on Twitter who are always harassing her. Um, okay, Graham, I'm really pleased to hear, by the way, that you're an optimistic, sunny disposition person. And that does come through in the book, actually, even though some of the stories you tell about your cancellation are grim and depressing, uh, f- in terms of what they tell us about society that does come through. So in, in that vein, I want to end with a question about comedy. I mean, you are known uh, for two things, I guess, firstly, for sticking your head above the parapet on the issue of gender ideology, but also for making millions of people laugh for a very long time with Father Ted in particular, but also Black Books and uh, the IT crowd and other loads of other stuff. 
Um, so we have a question from Sean who asks, what chance is there of laughter making a return? Uh, it, you know, it's 2023, identitarians are running riot. The trans issue is pretty dominant in respectable society, even though, as you've said, it's probably bristled against by many members of the public. What chance is there of comedy making a return, uh, kicking against some of this stuff that you're talking about? Uh, well, again, probably over-optimistic, but I think I think there is such a human desire to tell the truth and to be yeah. funny and to take risks and to entertain your friends and 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 thrill them with with you know some form or another of daring. Um, that I don't think it's the spirit you can keep down. Really, you know. What has been what has been unfortunate is 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 so many people of my generation more or less kicking the ladder away by endorsing cancel culture, calling it consequence culture, uh, or or what's the other thing they say that they're just um, uh, there's another another cliche they say, and endorsing this this world where you say the wrong thing and that's it, your life is over. So um, uh, so yeah, I'm hoping that that generation fucks off. And is replaced by, you know, a new one that uh, remembers that, you know, you have to tell the truth. That's the that's yeah. the golden rule, you know. It's not funny unless it's the truth, weirdly. Graham, thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you.